Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. I'm joined today by William Bowe from the Poll Bledger. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. So, last Saturday's Victorian state election produced a clear result in the lower house at least. Labor won a third term in power with a slightly reduced lower house majority. Labor did see a substantial two-party preferred swing against them, but it's still a significant majority on two-party preferred. We're looking at about 54% at the time of recording, 54.5% maybe. And much of that swing against Labor was concentrated in safe Labor seats, so uh, didn't lose Labor any seats, while Labor gained small swings in a bunch of crucial marginal seats. Um, Labor won re-election despite the second lowest Labor primary vote in decades, with the combined major party vote reaching a record low. Uh, Despite this overall trend, it looks like no independents will win seats, although there are two still in contention. And the Greens have won a fourth seat in the lower house, uh, and a large part of that is due to liberal preferencing decisions. Meanwhile, in the upper house, uh, there's been a bit of a shift towards more ideological preference decisions, which has seen Glenn Drury's preference alliance largely broken. And there's a clear progressive block on the crossbench, which should give Labor a strong progressive majority, even though Labor lost a number of seats. William, uh, were you surprised by this result? A little bit, which uh, is a poor reflection on me because I should have objectively looked at the polling data and ignored the media blather, which I imagine we're going to have more to say about throughout this this forecast, Uh, because news poll hit the nail right on the head. It's the best result they've had since YouGov took over them. And the published polling generally did very well. Uh, You know, the result strategic was sort of in the ballpark to the extent that it wasn't. They can certainly plead margin of error in the fact that they were polling a week before polling day. And uh, there was also other published polls. There was the one for the Herald Sun by Redbridge, which wasn't too bad. The actual published statewide poll they did about a week out. The Morgan SMS poll was a bit out, but you expect that. You know, if you just looked at the tenor of the polling, then the results were as they were. Uh, I might have expected, based on the polling, that Labor would lose a few more seats. But as you say, the the swing didn't land where the Liberals needed to to pick up seats. Indeed, uh, when I was being asked about the narrative, which we'll talk about in a second, my initial reaction was always to be like, Labor's fine. They're going to win like they're winning easily. I don't see any reason not to think that. And I would hesitate a little bit because you always hesitate with these kind of things. You don't want to be caught out. But my main, pretty much the only qualification I could find about that statement was there's not as much polling as I would like. Like it would be better if there was a few more polls out there to confirm that. But the polls that were there were absolutely clear and did really well. Um, But the narrative, I mean, the narrative, let's let's put aside the kind of very strong, fierce, anti-Andrews, Herald Sun narrative, even amongst more neutral media, there was an assumption towards the election being closer than it was, that it was neck and neck, that it was competitive in a way that it wasn't. Yeah, well, you know, you would think that the the, the, the 2018 result was unrepeatable under the circumstances. You know, you, we're talking about even if the last four years had been a normal four years, you know, that's four years of tear for a government. You would expect, you know, a a victory of that size to scale back a bit under the best of circumstances. These haven't been the best of circumstances for the Labor government. They, uh, you know, the the, the pandemic, you would think, would have been a negative. There there has been all, you know, not all of the media narrative is nonsense. The government have been 
tangled in IBAC a lot more than you would like for them to be. There are, uh, you know, some dubious economic indicators if you want to seize on those sorts of things. So, you know, you, you would have expected a, a, a fairly substantial erosion in Labor's position compared to 2018. Uh, it's certainly in terms of seats it, that that simply hasn't been the case. Now, you know, we, we ought to, you know, point out that, you know, in certain parts of Victoria, there were very substantial swings. And that's something that Labor needs to bear in mind. You know, they shouldn't be carried away about the result. They're probably a little bit lucky to have almost maintained their majority. The, the swings really distinctively landed where Labor could afford to take the hit. But, you know, that's something they need to think about going forward. They, uh, you know, need to reconnect with, with, with those areas where the swings were in double digits. Indeed. If you look at my blog post from Sunday morning, it's got a map, which I mean, the data is already out of date, but shows the two-party preferred swings by seat. And you can see some pretty clear geographical variation that's kind of outer north and outer west swung to the Liberal Party, some of them by quite a lot. You know, uh, Yen Yang, again, this is Sunday's data, but 11% swing to the coalition, Thomastown 105 uh, Uh and then smaller swings to the Liberals in a lot of other places, rural areas, kind of the southeastern corridor. Um, meanwhile, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, where there were a few key marginals, there were substantial swings to Labor, like Glen Waverley, uh, Ashwood, Ringwood, um, Box Hill, those kinds of seats, that area there, there were substantial swings to Labor. And there was a number of Labor-held marginals in that area that Liberals would have very much liked to get their hands on. So you do see that in the outer southeast, a lot of the marginals are still in play are out there. But again, the Liberals, if they get swings out there, they'll be very small swings. You know, that area, that north and west where they did well, just had room for Labor to absorb it and it didn't get anywhere. It's just the, the disproportionate... Um, uneven spread of swings. Yeah, I mean, the, all of the seats that you mentioned there where Labor did particularly well for the second election in a row, you know, that these are all seats which were traditionally Liberal seats. And, you know, I think there's sort of two different things going on here. There's a long-term structural realignment going on and there are factors that are more specific to, to this election to the fact that, you know, the lockdown clearly did bite Labor in the kind of working-class migrant-heavy areas of the, of the north and west of Melbourne, uh, whereas in the eastern suburbs, uh, you know, which was traditionally where the, where the Liberal base was, the Liberal Party are undergoing a long-term erosion there, perhaps particularly in Melbourne. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the kind of inner-city progressive sort of vote is spreading out into the suburbs. A lot of the, the people who uh, perhaps lived there in their youth are now, you know, moving out into the suburbs and taking their progressive values with them. Uh, a certain amount of being priced out of the market there is going on. There's international residences here. You know, these are the sorts of areas where in, you know, you look in London, you look in the, the wealthy suburbs of big cities in the United States, these areas are becoming progressive and they were traditionally, you know, well-heeled conservative slash Republican slash liberal areas. And I mean, the narrative did capture that there would be this kind of differential swing, um, maybe not so much in the eastern suburbs, but that in the north and the west were areas where 
the swing look like it would be concentrated, and that has proved to be true. I did caution against throwing the narrative completely out because uh, I think there was a lot of motivated reasoning going on in parts of the media, but it was still reasoning. It was like, if Labor are going to lose, why are they going to lose? And they picked up on things that were actually there, and we have seen them come through in the results. It does seem like part of that is about COVID, These are the kinds of areas that people are more likely to have had to keep working out of the house during lockdowns or just lost their work. Um, You know, we're more vulnerable to getting infected, things like that. It does seem like that was a bit of a thing there. Um, But also, I think there is a long-term story here that's really interesting about the Liberals are talking up their chances of building strength in these areas. Morrison certainly was during the federal election. We've seen it a little bit at a federal level since the federal election that they're going to pick up support in outer suburbia. And like maybe they will, but they're along like they're not gonna they're not gonna substitute for losses elsewhere for quite a while. You would need a even larger swings for that to happen. And in the meantime, it kind of creates a bit of a structural um imbalance in the electoral system in favor of Labour if Labor's not wasting their vote on racking up huge margins in those western suburbs, but they're still winning all the seats. Yeah, look, maybe in 10 to 20 years' time, we genuinely are going to see these seats in, you know, western Sydney or northern and western Melbourne, you know, rebel sufficiently against the Labor Party that they do come, you know. I'd sort of maybe draw parallels between how there was sort of talk about doctors' wives' effects during the Howard government and, you know, some overexcited media talk that Labor was going to start winning seats like North Sydney. Fifteen years later, that has finally come to fruition. You know, Labor are winning seats like Higgins at the federal election and obviously you've got the teal independence phenomenon. So perhaps with the double-digit swings we are seeing in these sorts of working-class seats in Melbourne, these are the harbingers of a long-term realignment that's going to cause real trouble for Labor down the track. But for the time being, what we are seeing is that 20% Labor margins are becoming 10% Labor margins. And where the election is there to be won and lost, you know, Labor are winning those seats. And as you say, it is a structural challenge, worse than a challenge for for the Liberal Party. You know, they're having this cultural debate within the party. Do we cut loose, teal them and, you know, pursue these sorts of working class seats and stitch together a new coalition that way? The federal election plus this election suggests that in the short term, no, that's not going to win you an election. I'm curious, actually. I don't know if you know, William. It would be a good one to look up. Did these swings correlate with the seats where Labor kind of pushed out their MPs? Because there was a bunch of Labor MPs who were deselected and replaced. Often you get a bit of a sophomore surge kind of effect that you see where a first-term government holds on to all its marginals because they have first-term MPs and suffer bigger swings elsewhere because those MPs have been there longer and have already established themselves. I haven't given that any thought at all. I think the uh, probably the outstanding example of that is Broadmeadows. Uh, you know, uh, clearly, I, I'd be very surprised if Labor did not take a hit in Broadmeadows because, you know, there was no objective reason for Labor to dump Frank McGuire. Uh, I, I don't know enough about the altern- the internal politics. I, you know, probably just, you know, some powerful person wanted a safe seat. 
he got kind of pushed out amid the Andy Adams Somirek purge, but I think he was innocent of that. And uh, I, I think he was probably popular locally. I, I know that his brother <laughs> likes to talk about his, his origins in Broadmeadows, so perhaps the Maguire family are local heroes there. And Broadmeadows was one of those seats of the big swings. But, you know, beyond that, I I haven't given the matter any thought. You, 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 I note that you just said that it's the case that a lot of these seats, seats the Labor members got pushed out. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that on notice. Before that, you mentioned, you know, the idea of the Liberal Party giving up on Tildum. You know, there's been a certain amount of fatalism from people in the Liberal Party being like, well, we can't possibly compromise with these people. So we're just going to get, have to give up a dozen safe seats, you know, to ensure political purity. We're not really thinking about what that cost. It doesn't at a federal level, maybe like five at a state level. Um, what that means, but also I think what this election has shown, at least so far, is, okay, the Teals are a force. They're going to maybe threaten these seats, make the Liberal Party have to work harder for them. But Right now, uh, we should talk in a second about Mornington and Hawthorne, but uh, right now the Liberals might hold on to all those seats, win back Hawthorne, strengthen their hold in Brighton and Sandringham. Like, they're not lost for a generation to the Liberals. And I think, you know, Morrison, that kind of fatalist approach ignores the fact that Morrison kind of had the opportunity to try and address these electorates during the federal election and, like, actively chose not to, you know. He, uh, he kind of he embraced... Uh, their rejection of him. He put in Catherine Deves and he he went out and I'm in Parramatta. The Liberal Party spent no money in this seat and Scott Morrison was here every second day. It's not inevitable that they'll lose those seats. If you look at the 2016 federal result, though, when, you know, you had Malcolm Turnbull, that was an, electra, an election at which the, the Teal constituency were on board with the Liberal Party. I think what sort of scarred the Liberal Party was that they did very badly in seats like Lindsay and Longman and these metropolitan periphery seats that are, you know, traditionally the the, the, the sort of bellwethers of federal elections. And, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, you know, those sorts of seats sort of stayed with the Liberal Party while they were getting decimated elsewhere. Um, I'm sort of trying to... Th- scan through in my head whether or not that that challenge might be a genuine one for the Liberal Party at a federal election, which in, is not so much the case at a state election in Victoria. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, as you say, the, the Liberal Party did hold on to, you know, the teal sort of area seats with much smaller margins than they, you know, are used to in those seats, you know, that, that like a seat like Caulfield for two elections now that, that they've been hanging on, you know, it used to be that they could take seats like that to the bank. Uh, but, you know, that there was a big swing, I think, of the Liberals in Brighton, which they were under the pump in last time. And, you know, this at an election where, you know, it didn't particularly seem to be part of the Liberal Party strategy to reforge their connections with the, the, the Teal rebels. So, you know, yeah, as you say, I, I would caution, though, you know, I, I noticed the front page of The Australian today is that Josh Frydenberg is now a big show in Kuyong. Um, I kind of rolled my eyes at that because 
there were a lot of reasons to think that the teal specifically wouldn't do as well at this election as they did at the federal election. And, you know, if you compare the Hawthorne result with the federal result, well, the teals did a couple of percent less well. Um, I do not think that that spells trouble for Monique Ryan, you know, particularly, you know, if they're going to keep Peter Dutton later. So, uh, yeah, you know, th th there's a lot to think about there. But, you know, uh, it, taking a step back and, you know, looking at what you're saying, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can argue with that. They did hold the seats that correspond with uh, Ku Yong and Goldstein. And they did it at an election where they didn't particularly seem to be trying to do that, which, again, they were trying to win by targeting suburban voters. One thing I've been wondering a little bit about is so Susanna Sheed, the independent Shepparton, lost after two terms. Ali Kappa lost after one term in Mildura, and either of them held their seats by massive margins. But it kind of doesn't really fit the pattern you you expect in terms of independents building up their strength. I'm still expecting a lot of incumbency benefit for the independents at a federal level, but I do wonder sometimes about when there's a bunch of them. They they maybe they don't get as much attention. Their resources can't be focused as much. Um, but one thing I don't know the answer to, and I feel like there's a couple of these we've been talking about in this podcast, maybe maybe a listener will, is what are the resources that are available to state MPs in Victoria that maybe are different to what's available to federal MPs? Because a lot of the incumbency benefit at a federal level is you have a large staff, a large, large, a large communication budget, uh, the ability to kind of use it for campaigning quite openly. But I know certainly in New South Wales level, state resources can't be used in the same way. And I do wonder if, particularly for independents who don't have the backing of a party, it makes them it makes it harder for them without those resources to kind of build up an incumbency advantage. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not a big fan of the incumbency advantage, but um, I wonder if that's a bit of an effect that it's harder or just there's less attention paid to a state MP than a federal MP. It makes it harder for them to kind of establish themselves. It could be. Um, I'm not very well placed to answer that question, but, you know, you might think, however, that what this election shows is that incumbency advantages are pretty substantial, precisely because the Liberal Party were not bringing home seats despite the fact that they got, you know, a, a not inconsiderable overall swing. I think if you look at the pendulum, you know, it, it, I think the, the swing against the Labor across the state seems to have been, I think you calculated 2.5%. Um, I'm a little bit higher. My system's telling me it's 3%, but whatever it is, if you look at the pendulum, how many seats should fall on that sort of swing? I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or eight. So, you know, uh, why is that? You know, it could be, you know, the reasons we've discussed, which was that the, the swing was just concentrated in places where it was absolutely useless to the Liberal Party. But I, I, I happened to be uh, working for Channel 9 on the night, so it was their, like, their, their broadcast that I was following and John Brumby was saying that he thinks that in the modern age incumbency advantages have increased. And, uh, you know, obviously your, your point is specific to independence. Maybe this is to do with the party machine. But he's, one of the points he made is that uh, social media makes it easier to establish personal connections with your electorate. 
So uh, I, I don't know. You know, this is a we're not we're not coming up with clearer answers here, but this is this is food for discussion. Uh, something that I'd throw out there maybe is that in terms of the rural independents losing their seats, uh, you know, there's been massive flooding in those areas recently. Uh, particularly Shepparton. Maybe what's going on there is a feeling that, you know, we need a voice at the table of government. You know, we need help from the government here. Uh, Crossbench independent probably, you know, in a, in a majority government situation is going to be a voice in the wilderness. Uh, maybe that was a selling point for the nationals in those sorts of seats, you know, that an independent is, you know, not going to deliver with the reconstruction funding that we're going to need. You know, uh, we, we, we can float hypotheses, you know, but, um, you know, that, that that's another suggestion I'd make specifically for those areas that perhaps isn't generally specific to what incumbency effects amount to in this day and age. Another example of the value of incumbency is right now the ABC's computer has seven seats changing hands, but two of those seven are seats where the redistribution flipped the seat from one party to the other, but the sitting MP was still running. So effectively what's happened is the sitting MP has regained a seat that the redistribution took away from them. Bass might end up being in the same category as well. That's three seats that are in that category. If you take those out or if you treat them as as, as not gains, as just no change at all, the list of seats that change hands becomes a lot shorter. So that's, those are all examples of the value of that incumbency that it's like, even when maybe your margin is minus 0.2, you can it's a bit easier to pull out with the incumbency. The other thing I would mention that is an alternative theory, I mean, you've talked a bit about the flooding, but I think generally we are seeing uh, the Conservatives doing better in rural seats. And we saw it at the federal level too, that urban-rural divide getting bigger. The Nats have done well. I don't know if it's a Nats thing or if it's just a, a rural area thing, but um, a coalition's gained three upper house seats. Two of them are in those regional areas. Um, they, you know, they picked up those independent seats. They picked up more well. Overall, the coalition, almost all of its positive results have been coming in the country. Again, that's a sort of interesting question to which I don't have clear answers. I, I think you sort of raise a good point. The question here is that is this a rural effect? Is it that the nationals are not suffering, haven't suffered the brand damage that the Liberals have suffered? That, uh, you know, the, 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 the party leadership, you know, Matthew Guy, you know, did not, you know, didn't connect with voters in 2018. He kind of imploded the moment he returned to the leadership last year. You know, he bundled straight into a scandal. And, uh, you know, maybe that's it. You know, and I was sort of vaguely thinking, without having too much to back it up, that there might be a kind of history of the Nationals consolidating at times when the Liberal parties are floundering in opposition. I could think of a few historical elections where, you know, Labor governments were very handsomely returned, but the National Party ended up looking relatively good. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons that might be, you know, uh, it, because, you know, this, this is the the story for the for the coalition is that I, I the, the the national party didn't do so bad 
you know, the, the, the silver lining for the coalition was that, you know, that they, they've picked up two seats from independents. They won more well. They have, and, you know, the, the balance of nationals to liberals in the next parliament is going to be, you know, not even, but strikingly more nationals heavy than you would ordinarily expect. And, uh, you know, we, again, as was the case with with previous questions, we, we've got a bunch of hypotheses. We don't have any sort of data one way or another to come up in favour of them, but these are the questions that need to be asked. Uh, let's talk briefly about the Greens. They uh, looked really good early on election night. They have gained an extra seat in Richmond. We'll talk about Northcote in a minute that uh, they that probably they won't win, but they might. Um, there was a bunch of other seats where it looked kind of competitive early on. A big part of that is that they got Liberal preferences, which didn't really change off, off a certain primary vote made their chances of winning much better. But overall, their primary vote, particularly in the lower house, the upper house, their primary vote has gone up more. But in the lower house, um, it's only gone up a tiny bit. We haven't this this kind of inner city surge for the Greens doesn't really seem to be based that much on any kind of primary vote um, benefit for the Greens. Um, I feel like they had a, a very good news night, and I don't think it's a bad election for the Greens. They at the moment it looks like they're going to go from having four MPs to eight. Uh, that's nothing to sneeze at, but um, maybe not quite such a green slide as Samantha Ratnam was spinning it on the night. No, uh, in the Greens' defence, they do have more competition than they used to have. Like the Victorian Socialists did, you know, certainly by their own historical standards, you know, very well. And obviously that a lot of that vote's coming out of the Greens. So uh, there's that. Um, I would make the point that talk of them, you know, winning Pascoe Vale, winning Footscray, winning these sorts of seats was a little bit hyped up by a media that was seizing onto any anti-Labor narrative they could get hold of. And, uh, you know, that may have encouraged exaggerated expectations about the Greens. Uh, the upper house, uh, as, as you sort of intimated at the very beginning, the uh, kind of Drury coalition fell apart a bit. So, you know, in 2018, the, 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 the Greens were really distinctively victims of the success of preference networks. Those networks having broken down, the Greens are now winning the upper house seats that you would expect a party that's getting 10% of the vote to win. So, uh, you know, all, all, all sorts of things going on there. But, uh, you know, again, if we just looked at the polls, then the, the, the Greens' performance shouldn't have surprised us. Their primary vote wasn't all that different to how it was in 2018. And, uh, you know, as a result, they won Richmond, which, you know, is you know a, a good thing for them. I'm surprised that they didn't win Northcote. That would be disappointing for them. I'm assuming they don't, that you wouldn't put a, put a line through that one yet. But, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, talk of them sort of sweeping into the further northwards and further westwards was, you know, probably overstating the situation. I think one of the things we'll see when all this comes out is, okay, the crossbench is actually smaller than last time. There's more places where there's a fight not involving both Labor and the Coalition happening. You know, independence, Greens, those fights are happening in more places. There's more kind of multi-front contests going on. Uh, even if not that many of those people won this time. Uh, and, you know, they won't always win, but that non-classic contest 
there's there looks like there's quite a few. You look at the two PP swing map, and I just had to grey out seats that don't have a two PP swing. And that inner city is just a a solid block of grey. <laughs> Maybe they'll come back and have another go in those seats. I want to come back to the upper house, but let's talk a little bit about some of these seats that are in play. Before we started recording, you were talking about Preston. Tim Colbatch in the Inside Story has uh, written a piece where he credits himself with a scoop in that absolutely nobody has countenanced the possibility that uh, one of the independents there, uh, Gaetano Greco, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, is only on 14% of the vote, which is why he's been missed. But the uh, situation in that seat is that he certainly is probably going to sneak through and make the final count. And the Labor primary vote, which I think from memory is sort of 37%, that yeah, is not so high that they are assured of winning the seat if the preferences lock in tightly behind whoever it is that comes second. And, uh, you know, this is a situation where both the right and left alike are not going to sort of reject this candidate. You know, the, the, the Liberal voters are going to put Labor last. So, you know, he's going to get right of centre votes from the Liberal Party. He has traditionally been aligned with the Labor Party. He has been on the local council for for a very long time. He uh, apparently Preston Markets is a big issue there. I don't know about the specifics of it, but it's the issue that he campaigned on. So he's had a good local issue to sink his teeth in. And, you know, if you're someone who is voting for the Greens, for Victorian Socialists, for Reason, for Animal Justice, all of these parties were in the field. Between them, there are a lot of the vote. If those voters are voting, you know, in a, you know, objectively rational, ideologically ordered way, they're going to put this independent ahead of Labor. And if all of those preferences lock behind him, then at the bare minimum, it's going to be very tight at the final count. So while the, the assumption was, and the VEC conducted a count between Labor and the Greens, that, you know, this is one of those sort of seats where the Greens are going to expand their empire, well, that hasn't happened. They're not going to finish second. But uh, because of that, people have sort of moved on from Preston. But in reality, the part of the candidate who is going to finish second, you know, may well pull the rabbit out of that. That VEC count is interesting still because it has the Greens in a Labor versus Greens contest on 47.8%. And that's off a Greens primary vote of 14%. And Greco is on 15%, Libs are on 17 So what Greco needs is he needs 2.2% of people who put Labor ahead of the Greens who, assuming all the people who put the Greens ahead of Labor preference him, which probably most will, um, he needs another 2.2%. And, like, I think that's quite plausible between Liberals and just, like, his own voters being less disciplined in preferencing the Greens than the Greens voters might have been in preferencing him. And maybe he'll get some votes from some of the right parties, like Freedom Party and Family First. I I think it could happen. Um, It's one worth watching. It would be really interesting if the... um, VEC could do a 3CP count like they like the AEC did in McNamara and Brisbane because if because if he comes out on top then you could switch and do the 2CP and find out the answer. Yeah, I'm sort of assuming that he will come out on top so that the the 3CP isn't really where the action is, but I could be wrong about that, you know. It's the, the vote is scattered far and wide. Um I said I think the Greens are coming fourth actually. I, I suppose that the Liberals are ahead of them. So, uh, you know, I don't imagine 
that preferences are going to break in such a way that anyone's going to chase him down and reduce him to third place, but uh, I could be missing something. He's in third. Oh, is he? Is he? Okay. Well, you know, there's there's an awful lot to consider in Preston, so maybe the 3CP camp would be the way to go. But the VEC have not pulled the Labor versus Greens camp like they have in a number of other seats. Uh, to, um, today, Monday, they uh, have issued a slate of seats where they're pulling the existing two candidate preferred count and they're going to conduct fresh counts between the candidates who clearly have come first and second. But none of those seats is terribly interesting. All of the, the result in each case is clear. So uh, maybe in the coming days they're going to make more interesting decisions, so to speak, about what you know whether or not they need to conduct fresh indicative counts. Let's just touch on the other seats that are in play. Mornington and and... Hawthorne, which are both places where independents are challenging, it looks like they're behind in those. And then there are there's Northcote, where at the moment the Greens are on 48.8% of the 2CP. Very tiny swing to the Greens, despite the fact that they're getting Liberal preferences, which frankly suggests that the Greens have gone backwards, which kind of makes sense. You think there's an incumbent Labor MP, there was an incumbent Green last time. But Labor's primary vote is steady while the Greens' primary vote is back 10. So they're kind of holding steady on just narrowly losing thanks to those Liberal preferences. It's not really a great position for the Greens to be in. Um, Then you've got, we've talked about Preston, and then there's three kind of classic seats, Bass, Hastings, Pakenham, all kind of in the same part of the world, way down in the southeastern edge of Melbourne. They're all seats where... The ABC has Labor ahead, although Pakenham looks like it's actually a 50-50 tie right now. And Bass, Labor's on 50.4, Hastings are on 50.7. Any thoughts on any of those? Uh, not really, except that I think what we're going to be seeing in late counting is that we've got mostly postals and absence still to come. Uh, probably in a typical seat, twice as many postals are still to come as absence. Um, absence in most of the seats we're talking about lean to the left. You know, I think that might be a hope for the Greens in Northcote. You know, they, they, they do well in absence there, uh, whereas postals are, you know, conservative. So, uh, you know, ordinarily in like counting, you know, with, with Labor versus Liberal seats, what you're used to seeing is that if Labor aren't ahead at this point, then they're probably toast because the, the postals will bring it home for the Liberals. Um, that obviously gives you less of a guide in Labor versus Green states. Uh, the Greens don't do well on postals. So uh, I think that's, you know, the, the situation, I suppose, at this point is that in a seat like Northcote, you would think that if the Greens are, as you say, behind, then they're in big trouble at this point. But the, the rabbit they might hope to pull out of the hat is, I said, a very strong performance on absence of which we have not had any votes counted at all that will begin to happen over the next few days um in a couple of places we're still waiting on some early voting booths to report um i think one example of that is bass from memory um i can sort of check that here um yeah you know for example i'm going off my own notes here in bass clearly there's an early count center that hasn't reported 
And I think that's going to decide the result because at a Victorian election specifically, you do not get votes broken down by polling centre, which is something I wish they'd look at. Whereas at a, at a federal election, every pre-poll voting centre reports its own result. So what we've got, for example, in Bass is that there are two out of three pre-poll centres have reported. We don't know which one, which of the two. So it's hard. And at the moment, the uh, going off my notes here, there has been a 5.5% swing to Labor in Bass on pre-polls. But as I say, that's only two out of three pre-polling centres. It may be that that big solid Labor swing represents the fact that the two out of the three pre-poll centres that are in are the ones that are more favourable to Labor. When the third booth comes in, it may be that that's the more conservative one, and then we will find out that pre-poll booth did not so heavily favour Labor relative to the rest of the voters it looks at the moment. And when that happens, that will mean that the Labor candidate there is not, in fact, going to pull the seat out of the fire. So that's, uh, you know, the, the situation as to where we are in Lake County. In most cases, as I said, sort of two out of the three votes that are yet to come postals, one out of the three is absent, but in a couple of seats, we're still waiting on a pre-poll result. And uh, that's the, 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 the equation that you need to look at in each specific seat. If it's all down to postals, then that's, you know, bad news for Labor if it's against Liberal. It's bad news for the Greens, whoever it is that it's against. And uh, that's my sort of broad, all-encompassing impression about Lake Counting without sort of singling out any individual seat other than best. And it's worth noting the pre-poll vote is massive this time. Postal vote has also grown, um, but the pre-poll vote is the biggest one. So it's one of the problems with pre-poll voting if there's only two or three centres in a seat, you don't have the same granularity of data. You're waiting for these big chunks to come in. Um, it's going to be a problem for the work people like you and I do if, if it continues to be such a large share of the electorate. Yeah, another seat that I keep in mind is Ripon, which uh, is being given to Labor. While I think that's probably right, the wild card in that deck is that there are 8,000 early votes still to come. If they are from a conservative centre, then maybe you can't write off the Liberal member there, who is Louise Staley, who had a bad redistribution and needed a swing of about 3% to win. Uh, she's picked up 0.7%. So Labor are 1,358 votes ahead, which you'd think would be decisive at this point. But with that many early votes, I would at least keep a, a circle around that seat. Let's take this home with a little bit more conversation about the upper house. Um, the overall trends are Labor has lost seats, the coalition's gained seats, the kind of thing that you would see in the lower house if it was proportional. There's a lot of votes still to count. We've mostly just got ordinary votes, a few postals in, uh, so things could change. And the kind of calculators on the ABC website assume every vote is above the line. It won't be. Below the line votes generally will make it harder for candidates with a tiny vote who are snowballing preferences. They'll be more vulnerable to getting knocked out or just having their vote total shrink a little bit. Um, at the moment, below the line votes are at about 10%, which looks like maybe it's up a slightly on the last election, but not up massively. The Greens have won four at the moment. Labor's on 15 and then there are four other kind of part of that progressive preference alliance to legalise cannabis, although legalised cannabis have chances in at least one other region 
and uh, one for reason and one for animal justice. Uh, not the sitting animal justice MLC from Western Victoria, though his vote uh, did not do particularly well. He did not do well out of preferences, a different animal justice candidate who kind of benefited from the jury preferences. And then there's a very small crossbench that's not of the left, one One Nation uh, DLP, but again, not either of the incumbent DLP members and one incumbent shooter who looks like he's been re-elected. So overall, clear progressive majority. Uh, Labor's going to need more of these crossbenchers. Maybe they'll be a slightly easier group to wrangle depending on how legalized cannabis goes. But let's talk briefly. I don't want to go into all of the preference distributions of all of these any longer than we already have. But can we talk briefly about legalized cannabis, who last time I checked polled 4.8% statewide. They polled over six in a couple of regions. Uh, where, where do you think that came from, William? Um, I didn't know that they'd actually done that well on the primary vote. I'm not as deeply into the upper house count as I'd like to be. Um, that, that, that's interesting. Um, I'd sort of make the point that, you know, they've got a constituency, you know, particularly, uh, I don't want to, you know, be too stereotypical about the kind of people who might vote for them, but I think they do do pretty well out of unwilling voters who are, you know, scanning the, the, the upper house ballot paper looking for the name of a cause that they support. So uh, the, this is not, you know, the, the, they've been doing well in upper house elections generally. Uh, I recall that immediately after the Senate, the federal election in May, it looked like they were going to win a seat in Queensland. They didn't bring it home, though. At the Western Australian election, they won two. So, uh, yeah, I, I sort of suspect that they uh, do well out of compulsory voting. Um, I, as you say, 6%, that, I, I'm impressed by that. that that's very high. Yeah, be, beyond the fact that uh, I think that they're a good upper house party in terms of having a really clear message to send simply from the name of the party alone. And I, I think this was Glenn Drury's great insight. You know, that if you have a, a party name that communicates something to the voter, then, and you have a, a voters who are befuddled by the large size of the, the ballot paper, and, you know, Glenn Drury exploited that by setting up parties, you know, quote, that, that, that weren't, you know, genuine political parties promoting that cause, they were, they were just harvesting votes. And, uh, you know, the, the legalised cannabis are a party that is actually a general, genuine party, but which, you know, does garner that kind of support, particularly at an election where you've got an enormous ballot paper. Uh, even so, 6% is impressive. You know, I, I've sort of said all this without touching on the extent to which the, the issue does genuinely have a growing basis of support within the community. I think perhaps, you know, a lot of people, particularly young people, are, you know, culturally well connected with the United States and are observing the fact that in the US, which, you know, is, you know, politically reactionary in a lot of ways, states are liberalising their cannabis laws a very great deal more than Australian governments are. And, uh, you know, I, I think that could be a growing issue, you know, that there is a, a, an awareness among young voters that, uh, you know, while, you know, Australia is, you know, very progressive in certain sorts of issues relative to the United States, this is one issue where, you know, Australia might be thought to be lagging. It's worth noting uh, one of the two regions where they cracked 6% 
which is also one of the two regions where they won, they got Group A on the ballot paper as well. So I think that that's not the main thing. Some of these regions, they were still polling 3 4 5% with uh, quite a low position on the ballot paper, but that might have helped them in that region where they, where they got um, Group A and they're probably going to win. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And, uh, you know, this is the other thing that we've sort of learned from looking at huge ballot papers over the years that the order that you're in on the ballot paper is important. So um, now that you have mentioned that they were Group A, I'm sort of less in gob that they got 6%. They did in another region without Group A, though, and they're not winning in that one. But still, like statewide, 4.8%, which is more than any party outside the major parties of the Greens. So it's substantial. It's not just voter confusion of ballot paper position. Um, maybe, maybe it's helped by having a huge ballot that befuddles people and they look for a name and they recognise that, I think it's quite possible. Um, but, you know, they're not winning because they're getting a tiny vote and doing really well on preferences. Preferences are helping them get there in the end, but they're they're in the hunt because they got more votes than all the other small parties. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.